the old pilot's plane tales. The rare red hawk. On April the 1st, 2011, a little-known story of intrigue and tension within the usually calm and placid country of Canada came to light. I need you to cast your mind back to a time when relations between North America and very North America, better known by producer Liz as her beloved country of Canada, and their southern neighbours were far from calm. This little-known affair of the 1960s has become notorious in government circles and is variously referred to as the stab in the backyard the fishbed flap, the Red Hawk incident, or more ominously, the Canuck invasion crisis. Relations between the two countries were brought to a breaking point and members of Congress were ready to apply sanctions while senior commanders of the United States Air Force were eager to confront the Royal Canadian Air Force in the air. The commander of the Strategic Air Command General Curtis LeMay apparently stated, My solution to the problem would be to tell those frozen Canuck bastards, frankly, that they've got to draw in their horns and stop their aggression, or we're going to bomb them into the Stone Age. To understand what had got everyone so upset, we must start with the remarkable 1953 Canadian project to build a world-beating Mach 2 50,000-foot-plus fighter the Avro-Canada CF-105 Arrow. Tired of manufacturing aircraft designed by others, a new generation of Canadians were determined to produce Canadian designs and the Arrow was going to be the aircraft of their dreams. Freed from the conventional ways of thinking that limited Avro's rivals the firm's engineers were going to work on revolutionary jet fighters, commercial airliners, flying saucers and even a space plane that would place Canada at the technological cutting edge of the new jet age. On the 4th of October 1957, 14,000 people watched a large hangar on the outskirts of Toronto open to reveal a beautiful, large, white, delta-winged aircraft. The aircraft was the Avro Arrow Interceptor. A third longer and broader than most of today's fighters, the Arrow could fly as fast as Concorde and had the potential to go even faster. It was Canada's 250 million, that's 1.6 billion dollar in today's money, bid to become an aviation superpower. It was bold and elegant and would serve as the Royal Canadian Air Force's primary interceptor in the 1960s and beyond. But not long after the 1958 start of its flight test program, the development of the Arrow, including its Orenda Iroquois jet engines, was abruptly and controversially halted, sparking a long and bitter political debate that still simmers today. To most Canadians, the Avro Arrow was a heart-achingly beautiful aircraft a breathtaking and futuristic symbol of a nation imbued with new technological confidence. 
suffused with the thrill of standing at the very edge of scientific achievement. The Canadians were abruptly yanked backwards the day the Arrow program was cancelled, and many Canadians who were alive that day still feel the sting. The action effectively put Avro out of business and scattered its highly skilled engineering and production personnel to companies all around the world. The pain of failure and urge to strike out also impacted military officers and senior government bureaucrats with equal force. Within two months of the project cancellation, all aircraft, engines, production tooling and technical data were ordered scrapped, and many mid- and high-level bureaucrats at the Department of National Defence were convinced that American political pressure had been applied to get the Canadian project cancelled in order to sell the new F-104 and F-101 fighters to Canada. Some believed it was Prime Minister Diefenbaker's personal decision, and a few in the inner circle believed that the then Minister of National Defence, George Piekers, was being blackmailed by an East German Matahari. It had been on the creaking wooden floors of DND's Hunter Building on O'Connor Street that the idea of an all-Canadian fighter interceptor had emerged amongst the Air Force veterans of World War II, the pilots, navigators and intelligence men known as the Hunter Boys. These men now believed they knew the culprit, the American Military Industrial Complex, as it was named by Eisenhower. The Americans were not fearful of the Arrow's promised capabilities. They had laughed at the suggestion. What they wanted was the Canadian market for military aircraft. At the time, Canada had one of the largest air forces in the world, with scores of impressively well-equipped bases stretching from Newfoundland to Vancouver, and hundreds of fighter aircraft with hundreds more utility and transport aircraft. If Canada took to building its own aircraft, its independence would divert billions of dollars into the Canadian economy that could have been heading south of the border. With the carcasses of their beloved arrows cut into scrap and the promise of independence from the United States dashed, the Hunter Boys sought a form of revenge so daring, so complete, that it would touch every American. They would set in motion a plan to purchase replacement fighters not from the United States, not even from Western Europe, but from the Eastern Bloc. During secret meetings held in the darkened tap room of the Bytown Inn, just across O'Connor Street from the Hunter Building, they conceived a strategy which would be known as the Labatt's Conspiracy. In a matter of weeks, they had set in motion a plan to confer with key Soviet officials. Low, mid and then high-level talks and meetings were sought between RCAF senior officers and the Soviet leaders, and by June 1959 the procurement team had made approaches to diplomats and party officials at the Embassy of the Soviet Union in Ottawa's Sandy Hill. 
In late August of 1959, a large team of Canadian officials, including Air Commodore Rowe, a number of test pilots and some aeronautical engineering experts from the Paul Kisman Institute, flew by RCAF North Star to West Berlin. From here they were discreetly escorted through Berlin checkpoints and on to the East German Air Force Base at Holzdorf in Schleswig-Holstein. There they were given unprecedented access to the previously secret MiG-21F, NATO designation Fishbed Bravo, and given a full demonstration by an up-and-coming Soviet test pilot named Yuri Gagarin. The Canadians were concerned about the MiG short range, but were very impressed with its Mach 2 capability and its rate of acceleration. Interpreters for the delegation translated Gagarin's grinning comments after the show as MiG-21 is lightning bolt across Mother Russia. MiG-21 runs like a scolded dog on Nevsky Prospect. The successful flying display led to the highest level talks yet between first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union, Anastas Mikoyan, the brother of Artem Mikoyan, one of the USSR's greatest aircraft designers, and Prime Minister John George Diefenbaker. Though the subject of the meeting was secret in every way, it was deemed a good idea to hold them in plain sight, and so, on the main floor of a trade fair in West Berlin, amidst vast 400-pound colour TVs, steam-powered lawnmowers, atomic ovens and toasters the size of tombstones, in the Soviet Union's vast gallery of progress and household joys, a deal was struck. The agreement ratified that day set in motion a series of steps that would strain Canadian-American relations for decades. The speed at which all this happened was fueled on Canada's end by Air Commodore Rowe's intense need for revenge and on the Soviet side by unbridled glee at the prospect of extending their influence to the 49th parallel. By their willingness to shop in the Soviet weapons market, the Russians were convinced that the Canadians were turning towards communism, bolstered by the fact that Canada was in the throes of socialising their entire national health care system. Over the next three months, 30 shiny new MiGs were selected from the factory line at the Mikoyan OKB plant outside Moscow, dissembled, crated, and shipped by rail to the White Sea port of Severodivinsk. Throughout the months of February and March of 1960, a series of rusty Russian freighters were loaded with crated aircraft under the cover of darkness. One by one they weighed anchor and took a course north and then west out to the open sea bound for the east coast of Canada. Each ship was secretly shadowed all the way by a Russian submarine. Discreetly offloaded at the port of Bathurst, New Brunswick, the ships disgorged their crates onto CNR flatbeds under the supervision of Air Force MPs. The shrouded cars were then coupled to a locomotive and sent on a two-hour overland journey south 
to RCAF Station Chatham, the base for the Fighter Conversion Unit for Canadian Sabres. Here, under airtight security, Mikoyan technical representatives supervised the reassembly of the fighters as they arrived, and a team of four pilots from the East German Air Force carried out nighttime flight training with pilots of 441 Squadron who had been brought home under secret orders from Marville, France, where they had been stationed. Over the next two to three months, Flight training proceeded apace, and by late June 1960, the Canadian pilots were ready for a ferry flight to their eventual home base of Cold Lake, Alberta. But first, they had to pick a name for their new fighter, which the RCAF was calling the CF-121. At this time, the Canadian aerobatic demonstration team, the Golden Hawks, were stationed at the other side of the base. The squadron commander, squadron leader Stefan Schwilka, inspired by the Hawks, named the new type the Red Hawk. More creative squadron pilots nicknamed it the Stratocaster, or Strat, a name that paralleled their German instructors, who called the MiG-21 the Balalaika. Before dawn on June the 23rd, 1960, Nine pairs of CF-121 Red Hawk fighters started up on the flight line. Though ramp lights were kept off for secrecy, ground crew could see for the first time the freshly applied 441 Silver Fox squadron checkerboard tail markings, aircraft numerals, RCAF titles and roundels. The shrieking Tomansky turbojets turned the ramp into a noisy inferno as each gleaming fighter lurched forwards in turn, wheeled left and taxied in line to the end of runway 25. There, in pairs, they lit the afterburners and thundered down the runway to take off into history. Radio silence was to be kept the entire way. An hour later, right after sunrise, as commuters were just beginning to bustle into the city of Montreal, nine pairs of MiGs began letting down towards St. Hubert, with the sun rising like a brilliant white disc behind them. While the tower was expecting them, the radar station at RCAF station Victoriaville was not. A curious technician saw the MiGs descending and dashed inside and sounded an alarm that would send a pair of standby interceptors from their combat-ready hangars to launch and intercept them. The MiGs got down just as a pair of CF-100s from 425 Squadron lifted off. They got away with it this time, but soon the story would break. Finally at Cold Lake, 441 Squadron started working up with their MiGs for their first big exercise, Rolling Cossack, in late July. Although the CF-100s of 433 Squadron dominated the Red Hawks, they were gaining experience quickly. Now the RCAF knew it was just a matter of time before the US learned of the Red Hawk program. In fact, they were surprised they'd managed to keep a lid on it for so long. But it was during the next exercise, Perogi, that two major events happened. 
one of the Red Hawks finally fell victim to its lack of range and flamed out south of Cold Lake, crashing near a small hamlet called Glendon in Alberta. The other, more dramatic event was a photograph taken by a U.S. serviceman on a camping trip near Moose Lake, who took a grainy image of four red hawks streaking past in close formation. It was soon plastered on the front page of every newspaper in America, Canada and Europe. To say the least, everyone save the hunter boys and the Soviets were stunned. The New York Times printed the headline, Canadian Plot Foiled, USM and Saves Nation, whilst the Chicago Tribune ran with a simple, Canadian Communist Shocker, and the Washington Post used a double entendre, bordering on evil, Soviet fighters amass at border. Canadian and American diplomats were scrambling to understand what was taking place. In one day, the security focus of the United States turned 180 degrees from Cuba to Canada, and for the next week, U-2 flights were ordered day and night over Canadian military bases. National Guard units from Maine to Montana were mobilized, and infantry units, mechanized units, and Bomark SAM missile batteries began to pile up along the 49th parallel. Vice President Richard Nixon spat acidic, invective and inflammatory comments and used a now famous phrase, Soviet Kanukistan has dropped the Iron Curtain along the 49th and the United States of America will tear it down and wipe Canada clean with it. It sent massive shivers rippling through the Canadian Parliament. By 1961, President Kennedy had been inaugurated and promised to mend the fences between both nations. The term shuttle diplomacy was first coined during the Red Hawk incident as delegations flew back and forth between Washington and Ottawa. If Canada guaranteed the end of Red Hawk, the United States would remove their military units positioned along the border allow American aircraft to be license-built in Canada and seriously consider socialising their healthcare system. Now all that exists of those CF-121s are a few photographs and an old gate guard at CFB Cold Lake. This story emerged following a remarkable piece of detective work by D.H. Yellamo who first published it on the 1st of April 2011 on the Vintage Wings of Canada website under the title The Breaking Point. My thanks to Chris Postal for innocently suggesting I cover the subject. In case you are wondering, yes, this story was originally an April Fool's joke. And if you enjoyed it, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. My thanks, of course, to the original author of the story, D.H. Yelamo. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. And you can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.